Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a cardiologist explains the revised guidelines about heart disease and the use of aspirin. So they modified the guidelines a little bit, um, but what came out just recently is a big change. An expert in public health and preventive medicine discusses neighborhood violence and its impact on the community. One of the things that I think people have been noticing is that the upstate cities like Syracuse in New York State are getting particularly violent. And an endocrinologist tells about an exciting development for people with diabetes, the possibility of an insulin you don't have to inject. We are conducting a clinical trial where we just completed our recruitment uh, for oral insulin formulation. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a public health expert about the impact firearm violence has on the community. Then, an endocrinologist tells about the ongoing development of an oral insulin for people with diabetes. But first, a cardiologist explains whether aspirin still has a role in the prevention of heart disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. There are new guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association about the use of aspirin in people with heart disease. And so we turn to upstate cardiologist and associate professor of medicine, Dr. Robert Carhart, to help us understand the changes. Thank you for being here, Dr. Carhart. My pleasure. Now, we've heard for years about people taking a daily aspirin to help prevent a heart attack. Is that no longer the recommendation? That is correct. And, and I think the, the, there are several modifications to that statement. So a lot of this is based on sort of re-looking at data. Um, when the recommendation was initially made, it was based on the fact that it seemed people who took a daily aspirin had less heart attacks, had less strokes. Um, so that's where the original recommendation came in. There was a, a modification to that recommendation probably at least five years ago when it turned out that women actually on a whole got less benefit from that daily aspirin compared to men. Oh, okay. So the original recommendation was anyone over the age of 40 should start an aspirin a day. And typically we're talking 81 milligrams or a baby aspirin. That then became age 50 men more than women. And women didn't seem to really achieve benefit uh, until after the age of 60 to 65. So they modified the guidelines a little bit. Um, But what came out just recently is a big change. Um, And it's really based on assessing risk. So I'm going to start with a, a little extra piece here. This is specifically for primary prevention. So if you've already had a heart attack, if you've already had a stroke, you're not included in these recommendations because you need to be on aspirin for secondary prevention. Okay. So So these are people that have not, have not yet had an event. Okay. Um, And really what they did is they tried to risk stratify, which makes sense. So the appropriate people get medication, The people that don't need it, don't take it. And, you know, everyone thought, well, it's 81 milligrams. It's a, quote, baby aspirin. What harm can it do? And that's not correct. I mean, it increases your risk of bleeding, um, most commonly bleeding in the GI tract. Um, It increases your risk of bleeding, certainly, if it's combined with taking that occasional Aleve or Motrin. Um, and you know, even additional supplements, people who take a lot of fish oil or vitamin E are an increased risk for bleeding. So what they wanted to do was look at who is aspirin most appropriate for. So a lot of these, this recommendation is really based on what is your risk? Um, and, and really where the recommendation specifically for aspirin fall is the following. The, the suggestion of 
everyone between the ages of 40 and 70 should be risk assessed. And there are a whole lot of different uh, tools where you basically put in age and gender and blood pressure, cholesterol, and it gives you a risk score. And people fall into low risk, which means your risk of having a cardiovascular event in 10 years is falls into a percentage range. So people over the over 20% on these risk calculators are considered high risk. Those patients are ones that probably will still benefit from aspirin because the benefit of being on the aspirin is higher than the risk of being on the aspirin based on your risk of bleeding when you're taking the aspirin. If you fall in what they consider intermediate range, which is about 7 to 20%, um, then you should weigh it based on other factors. Um, and only the, the recommendation only exists if you're not at additional risk for bleeding. So if you've had other problems that make you prone to bleeding, you've had ulcers in the past, for example, or things like that, then the recommendation says you probably shouldn't be on an aspirin. And, and clearly, the biggest group is the low risk. You're, you're, you know, your risk of a cardiac event in the next 10 years is less than 7%. You should not take an aspirin because the risk of being on aspirin is higher than the benefit you're going to get. So we're putting a little bit more kind of emphasis on picking the appropriate target as opposed to which makes sense. It sounds like that's that makes imminent right. sense to and, do. And I so. think that there was a lot of pushback. I mean, I've had a lot of patients over the years who said, you know, I'm bruising, I get nosebleeds, do I really need to take this? And, you know, most of the patients I see obviously have already had a cardiac event, but, you know, their spouse is in the room or what should I tell my family members? And and so we get into these discussions. And this is good because it gives you something to hold on to. So um, looking at the ages of 40 to 70, that's mm-hmm. the age range that you see heart issues coming mm-hmm. to light. Um, what are some of the things that I would have in me that would make me, you know, at higher risk? for? Right. So again, if you're, for example, a cigarette smoker, that increases your risk. If you're a diabetic, that increases your risk. Um, if you're hypertensive uh, in have to take you know, or take medication for hypertension, um, that increases your risk. So age is one of it. And, and another piece of these recommendations, um, speaking of 70, is that once you're past the age of 70, if you've not had a cardiovascular event, there likely is no benefit to take that aspirin because it takes up to 10 years to see the benefit. Oh. So the recommendation now is if you haven't had a heart attack or a stroke by age 70, don't start taking the aspirin then because, again, the risk of bleeding probably outweighs the benefit. Now, how does aspirin work to help prevent? And is it is it just heart attack that it helps prevent? Well, aspirin basically prevents cells in your bloodstream called platelets from clumping together and forming clots. Um, these clots, specifically for heart attack or stroke, for example, if you have a cholesterol plaque in your blood vessel, that plaque ruptures or opens up, the platelets tend to aggregate around that and that forms the clot. So when you're using this, um, that is what is felt to be the primary benefit. Uh, There's a secondary benefit, which is still debated, is that aspirin, people take it because it reduces inflammation. What makes a plaque more prone to rupture is if the plaque is inflamed or unstable. So there is some belief that that may be an additional benefit to being on the aspirin and how it works. But primarily, it's because it decreases your risk of forming clots. So this deals more with um, heart attack than it would. It doesn't have anything to do with heart failure or atrial no. fib or any of the no. other. And in, in, if you mentioned atrial fib, in patients that are low risk for developing clots from atrial fib, and that's typically people who are young, um, the recommendation for those people, for those patients, is to take in a baby aspirin a day. If you're in what's considered a higher risk group, um, and again, you know, your score is calculated based on age and pre-existing disease, then you're going to use 
warfarin or one of the newer medications that are out. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate cardiologist, Dr. Robert Carhart, about the new uh, guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. Now, you were at the conference in New Orleans recently where they unveiled these. Um, So talk to me a little about other, because there was more than just aspirin. What are, what are some of the other recommendations that So really what, the, what was presented was the ACC, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association joint statement on prevention, primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. There have been guidelines in the past. This is the newest iteration. So aspirin was one piece. Aspirin obviously was the big thing that came out because whenever you talk about stopping a therapy, you know, it right. makes news. Right. Um, don't use medication and people get excited. But there are a lot of other components to this. Um, and really, a lot of it has to do with what you as an individual can do to reduce your risk. Um, and some of it was based on, you know, providing some guidance as to when we should be intervening on people, for example. So if your cholesterol is high, again, they talked about risk groups based on age and based on other factors in terms of who should or shouldn't be started on a medication to lower their cholesterol. Um, So they talked about that in terms of primary prevention. Again, the, you know, the, the interjection here is if we already have vascular disease, so you've had a heart attack, you've had a stroke, you're going to be on these medications. But if you don't have any of those and your cholesterol numbers are high, who should and who shouldn't be started on a medication? So those guidelines were there. They talked about appropriate level of exercise. You know, we should be doing moderate exercise. And I think the recommendation was at least 150 minutes per week. Um, And again, this is for people who don't have a heart condition. Do not have a heart condition. This is you know, what can you do to help? What can we as healthcare providers suggest to patients to reduce their risk? Um, You know, there was discussion about diet and obviously stay away from fats and, you know, people should be eating more plant-based diets and more, quote, Mediterranean-style diet to try to reduce their risk. You know, smoking, we all know smoking is bad. Smoking predisposes you. Again, they talked about the various interventions that can be done to help people to stop smoke. So from that standpoint, there, there were a lot of, there was an emphasis on a lot of different things for primary prevention and in trying to reduce the population at whole or your patient specifically in terms of their risk of developing a cardiovascular event. Did they talk about or change um, the high blood pressure numbers? Yes, that was a a recent change. Um, And it used to be considered 130 over 80 was considered pre-hypertension. That's now considered hypertension. Um, And, you know, you should be intervening early. And and really, some of this is just based on the fact that the longer someone runs with a slightly higher blood pressure, the greater the risk that they're going to develop changes that may in a sense, propagate that blood pressure and continue to go down that road. So they lowered the goals. Um, You know, it wasn't that long ago that you were fine as long as you were less than 140 over 90. Right. Now it's 130 over 80. And, you know, they're lowering the target. So now you have a whole lot more people that are considered hypertensive. But again, some of the, the emphasis here is what can we do to intervene early? So, If your blood pressure is running consistently 134 over 86, say, that doesn't mean that somebody's going to just say, oh, start this medication. It means, you know, you need to exercise more. You need to perhaps lose weight. You need to look at your diet. Are there things you can do to fix that? So things besides medicine that Absolutely. And really, you know, this shouldn't be looked at as a way to, you know, push more pills on the population. It's really more an issue of trying to classify people in terms of them understanding, you know, even though maybe you think you have a reasonable lifestyle, here's a few other things you can do just based on where you may be falling with your risk. 
So I think everybody knows that smoking is bad. Mm -hmm. So when I go to the doctor and the doctor asks me if I'm a smoker, I may feel like, well, I know I'm not supposed to be smoking. I'm going to say no. I mean, how do you tell if someone's telling you the truth? Well, I mean, the transplant programs, for example, actually test to look for nicotine in your system. Oh, really? Yeah, there are ways of doing that. Um, you know, you, you depend a little bit on a person's honesty. I mean, you know, sometimes it's not hard to figure out somebody smokes just based on, you know, kind of the nicotine stains on their fingers, for example. Right. Um, but really the reason that we as healthcare providers are asking is because it changes your risk. So your blood pressure, your cholesterol levels may be acceptable for somebody who is a non-smoker, but because you're a smoker, that changes it. And, and we may have to do other things. So yes, you know, we all recognize it's not the best thing for you. Also recognizing that it is an addiction as other things are. And it's very hard sometimes for people to stop. But it's important to let your doctor know yeah. that that's I mean, you know, being upfront and honest is going to help. I mean, you know, I've had many patients tell me, what's the point of coming here if I'm not going to tell you the truth? Right. right. Well, thank you. It sounds like um, people who are taking aspirin maybe ought to have a conversation with their doctor and find out if they still should be doing that. Absolutely. And I, I think certainly, you know, the the statement that I kind of made at the beginning, if you've already had something, don't stop. Um, and if you just decided to start taking aspirin on your own because you read it was a good thing, have a conversation with your doctor because you may not be somebody that should be on it. Well, thanks for being here. My guest has been Dr. Robert Carhart, a cardiologist from Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, do restrictions on gun sales reduce gun violence? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Can stronger restrictions on firearms help reduce the number of gun deaths? We'll explore this subject today with a medical social scientist. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Christopher Morley. He's chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate and an associate professor in family medicine and psychiatry and behavioral sciences. Welcome, Dr. Morley. So before we talk about your work on the association between firearm-related deaths and restrictions in New York State, I want to ask you about some other work you did recently on red line segregation. Tell us what, what that is. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the, this work. The, uh, the history of redlining uh, actually spans a number of cities across the U.S. In the Great Depression, uh, the Homeowners Lending Corporation was an organization created by New Deal legislation in response to uh, catastrophic economic consequences of the Great Depression. And what, the, what HOLC, or the, uh, the, the acronym spells out, was doing was grading neighborhoods within cities for their creditworthiness. And if people lived within uh, an area that had a low credit rating, uh, for the whole area, they weren't able to access things like like business loans or refinance. And it had a dramatic effect on cities for their long-term viability because uh, neighborhoods where you can't get credit or can't start a business fall into disrepair and, and become even more segregated. Um, the, the grading of neighborhoods went from an A listing, which was a top-notch credit-worthy neighborhood to uh, B, down through C, and D. Uh, the areas that were listed as D and, and sometimes C often had literal red lines around them on a map. And if a client came into a bank, the bank would pull out the, 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 the map. And if you lived within a red line district, uh, you probably weren't getting any financing from that bank. 
regardless of whatever else you came from. And those those districts were often decided not just on uh, the cost of houses or, or, or things like that, but they actually, if you look at the forms, included things like the ethnic composition, the number of, of immigrants in the neighborhood, the number of African Americans in the neighborhood, and so forth. So do these neighborhoods persist today? Is it set up like that? So in some cities, they've, th- those areas have been gentrified. However, in Syracuse, one of the things that came out of the symposium on uh, health and society from a couple of years ago was that all of the talks were talking about Syracuse and things going on in Syracuse and in central New York. And our guest speaker did some background research and put up the red line maps just as a, a separate talk. And if you had attended the whole session, the whole series of sessions, you recognize that every area we were talking about is suffering from various um, uh, terrible health outcomes was also overlapping with these areas that had been historically redlined. So what we were looking at is these these, um, historical policies from nearly a century ago were um, apparently still playing out. They were still associated with health effects today. So what we did now was take a look at some 20th century data that we had lying around on a few different health effects, uh, health outcomes for the neighborhood, uh, neighborhoods in Syracuse, and did a, did a study internally looking at the, the associations between those living in those neighborhoods and what the outcomes were for those neighborhoods today. And we looked at um, low birth weight, we happen to have a data set from 24 through 20, 2000, 2004 to 2007, and it turns out that um, low birth weight was one and a half times more likely to occur uh, in area in people who lived uh, in these, these areas that had either had a C or a D rating historically back in 1937. Additionally, people who had uh, elevated blood lead levels uh, were two and a, two a little bit more than two times as likely to live in area that area that had been historically economically segregated in this fashion, and most pointedly, and the thing we see in the headlines today are, are, are almost daily shootings and stabbings and, and other other sorts of violence. So we actually had a uh, a, a database of of incidents of, of firearm violence in the city and neighborhood firearm violence. Uh, the rates of fi- neighborhood firearm violence per square mile incidents of, squ- of, of firearm vi- neighborhood violent firearm violence per square mile uh, were about 140, a uh, little bit higher per square mile versus about 29, about about 30, 29.996 uh, for people who did not live in these historically so segregated huge, areas. huge, 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 huge difference. Yeah, in all sorts of he- of of. of um, I suspect we could keep going if we if we had other variables to analyze. But yeah, the the neighborhood firearm violence is particularly acute if you look at these areas that had been historically redlined versus those that had not. So, as a medical social scientist, does any of this surprise you? No, not at all. And when we look at these variables, we have to take into account that the historically redlined areas are going to uh, be associated as well with current socioeconomic disadvantages that also will be currently associated with with contemporary uh, poor health outcomes. This is seen across uh, public health and social science studies of, of, of health outcomes. So this isn't surprising. The what we think was was sort of the interesting thing about this study, uh, it's not unique, other people have done it in other cities and found similar results, is that when you actually look at this historical policy, the implication isn't that socioeconomic or sociodemographic variables influence health outcomes, but that there's a, also a historical policy that may have uh, served as a precipitator for the for the um, the, the maintenance of of socioeconomic disparity through uh, ongoing neighborhood segregation. The effects of redlining lasted for decades and uh, as, a, as an acute policy, and I think we can see the downstream effects even today. So another research project you were involved in looks at the association between firearm-related deaths and then the restrictions on sale, use, possession, and ownership of firearms in New York State. What made you want to look at this issue? So when we look at... Um, 
geographic differences, another thing that's going to, and health outcomes, another thing that's going to affect um, things that are happening, things that happen at the state and county level, right? We looked within the city of Syracuse at areas that had been affected by this redistricting, but at the state and county level, um, one of the things that was becoming apparent is that you see an awful lot of uh, violent incidents if you either monitor our own trauma unit or ER stats, or if you just read the newspaper. And one of the things that I think people have been noticing is that the upstate cities like Syracuse in New York State are getting particularly violent, especially when you compare historically high crime areas in New York City and, and places like that. People we associate as the population centers with crime, that seemed to be shifting. So we decided to take a look. And we used a database that's produced by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, uh, called Whiskers. And I won't go into the, the, uh, the, the lengthy acronym for that, but it's basically a data set for, for injuries and fatalities that, that count uh, injury, reported injuries and fatalities at the county level across the country. And we decided to look at New York State as a, a potential natural quasi-experiment because New York State has, um, has a state level of restriction, and, but then the counties are awfully free to uh, enact additional restrictions as opposed to being, uh, being held to the state standard and nothing else. So instead of saying counties shall issue a, a pistol permit, for example, the county officers who do the issuing sh may issue a per pistol permit and they have significant discretion. And places like New York City, which count encompass five counties, have um, even additional regulation on the on a statutory regulation on who can possess firearms, including long guns, and how they can be possessed and carried. So it's stricter. It's much stricter. And then counties, such as Long Island counties, Suffolk and Nassau, um, are often very restrictive in how they issue the state-level permits. For example, a full carry is very typically only to and from the shooting range or, or to a, a dedicated shooting activity. You can't just walk around with a concealed firearm or a visible one for that matter. You can have it in your home, you can carry it to and from a shooting range, but not many other places. Um, very few people get, get full carry licenses. So whether it's by the, the discretion granted to the issuing agent or by local legislation. New York City often operates as, as, a, as its own entity in, in, in a lot of regards. Um, these places are more restrictive. And they historically had higher crime. But what we looked at when we looked at our, our, um, our data that we, we acquired from a public source, we found that when we we looked at um, general population firearm deaths, that means everybody who 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 died from a gunshot wound of any sort, whether it's homicide, accident, suicide. Um, we had sixty-two counties that had data available in in Whiskers, and for fourteen of those counties, we had uh, incidents of black male deaths. And black males tend to be dying at a higher rate. So we wanted to look at them as a special category. Um, and what we found uh, is that there were data available from 2008 through 2014 in this Whiskers, CDC Whiskers database. And when we looked at just New York City counties, the five New York City counties versus any other county in New York State for which there were data. So um, New York City versus essentially the rest of the state, we found that New York City had a, uh, a death rate for 2008 through 2014 of about 11.64 uh, deaths per 100,000 people. The rest of the state was, uh, had a death rate of about 13.76. Almost 14 people per 100,000 were dying from firearm-related uh, incidents. Um, and when we include Long Island with New York City. So we look at this sort of downstate restrictive area for firearms. Uh, New York City still is about a little bit more than 11 per 100,000 with LA, LI included. So LI looks a lot like New York City from, from, from firearm death rates. And the rest of the state is still about the same. So adding Long Island did almost nothing. You added these suburban counties that are just more restrictive in practice, if not by statute. And the, the effect was almost identical. So fewer um, deaths per 100,000. 
uh, in, in the New York more, City, in the, in the more, more restrictive, restrictive areas, yes. Uh, and those were uh, marginally significant effects. However, when we rates in the in the uh, in the in the general population um, didn't differentiate between upstate cities. We also looked at upstate cities and compared those other cities. Syracuse, Buffalo, and Rochester fell in that category with the counties they sit in as proxies. So Erie County, Monroe County, and Onondaga County. When we looked at those cities compared to the rest of the state, there was no significant difference for the, for, for the general population when we did the same kind of analysis. So New York City and Long Island are actually are, have, have better rates than the rest of the state. But these upstate urbanized counties, what we call them, the three other biggest cities, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and the counties they sit within, um, are not different than the rest of the state. But when we looked at uh, with specifically at black males in the 14 counties for which we had data, and that includes Erie, Monroe, uh, Onondaga, the five New York City counties, Long Island. So, so the same counties were measuring plus a smattering of other counties across the state. Black males had a markedly higher death rate uh, from firearms uh, than in, in the upstate New York City uh, the upstate uh, uh, cities um, than in the rest of states. So black males were dying at almost 41 uh, incidents per 100,000 people versus the rest of state, which was about 16.72. Uh, wow. not, not quite 17 per 100,000. So you got about 41 compared to 17 um, deaths per 100,000. And we looked individually at the counties. I didn't bring the data with me, but when we separated out the counties, Buffalo and, and, and Onondaga are, are pretty are, are two of the highest uh, count, counties in terms of black male death rates from firearms in the entire state. And, and when we did county by county comparisons, people can look up the data and we don't have time to go through county by county comparisons. But um, so, for example, if people who grew up in the 70s remember movies that portrayed the Bronx as, as something, some, this terribly violent place, well, Buffalo and, and, and Erie County and, and Onondaga County put the Bronx to shame. Um, and if, we were, if, if, if we're getting medals for the highest black male gun death rates. So the thing about these upstate urbanized cities is that they tend to follow restrictions that are much more like the rest of the state. So if you have an urbanized area that has um, more generalized or less restrictive uh, policies toward firearms or are, you know, the, the, the boundary between any of these cities and what becomes rapidly suburbia and rural areas, if you don't like the gun policy that's enforced within <laughs> at, at the sheriff's office, go next door and you have easy access. Um, those tend to have higher firearm rates. Now, this is not a causative study, right? We looked at associations only. We can see, well, this happens here and then this effect happens here. It doesn't mean we can draw a straight line. However, it is suggestive that in places that have um, taken a serious stance on who owns and who carries and how you possess and how you use a firearm seems to have an effect specifically uh, and, and more acutely within um, subpopulations like black males, um, that, that those counties uh, tend to have a, a mitigating effect on, on who dies from firearm deaths. I thank you for bringing this to our attention. My guest has been Upstate Medical Social Scientist Christopher Morley. He's the chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, can a pill replace an insulin injection? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. For people who require insulin for diabetes, treatment has involved painful injections. The future may hold an alternative. Here to tell us about it is Dr. Ramachandra Naik. He's a professor of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism, and the assistant dean for translational and clinical research programs at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Naik. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
We take pills for so many other diseases. Why hasn't there been a pill for diabetes? Oh, there are pills for diabetes, of course, just, but just not, not insulin. insulin. Yeah, exactly. You are absolutely right. Because um, let me take a step back and tell the, if you go back to the history of diabetes therapy started in 1920s, with insulin was the first treatment discovered for diabetes and it is an injectable formulation. Then came a couple oral tablets in 50s and 60s and really speaking from 2006 till today, there has been a surge of both oral and injectable non-insulin and refined insulin preparations being available for treating uh, type 2 diabetes. But to answer your question, insulin is a protein, it's called polypeptide and whenever any polypeptide substances are administered by mouth, the gastric acid disintegrates and breaks them down. So they cannot get absorbed and reach the bloodstream. That's been a major hindrance for giving insulin in the oral formulation all these years. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. But there's something on the horizon that maybe gets past that? Yes, I think uh, we are conducting a clinical trial where we just completed our recruitment uh, for oral insulin formulation. Just to put the things in perspective, a couple of big pharmaceutical companies in the recent years had tried and it did not succeed. But this formulation that we are currently testing in the clinical trials seems promising and seems to overcome some of the barriers that uh, were encountered by the previous oral formulation. So what this company called Oramed based in Israel and headquartered in New York in the US, what they are doing is they are encapsulating insulin uh, and that encapsulation prevents its disintegration in the acidic environment of the gastric or uh, the stomach uh, stomach uh, cavity and it goes into the intestine and then it disintegrates in a slow fashion. So basically the excipient as what we call that is added prevents one a breakdown of the insulin in the stomach in the acidic environment and number two it helps in absorption of the insulin from the intestine into the blood circulation and the initial results have shown promise in terms of efficacy and safety in both type 2 and type 1 diabetes uh, patient population. So there's some sort of a container or capsule that they've come up with that's immune to the gastric juices. That's correct. They call it as what we call in medical parlor as enteric coated. That oh, means okay. it prevents disintegration of this formulation by the gastric enzymes. And then it goes into the intestine and then it gets uh, what we call by process of translocation goes through the gut cavity, uh, the wall, and then gets into the blood circulation. It reaches liver and then into the other organ system from there on. So it probably doesn't work as quickly as an injectable insulin because it's not directly into the bloodstream immediately. It's a good question. That's what we are testing because it does work, I would say, very close to a short-acting insulin and between a long-acting insulin, somewhere in that ballpark. So we are still testing that. That's the reason the trial that we currently are undertaking tests this formulation once a day, twice a day, and thrice a day, and in three different doses. So the company is trying to figure out what would be the right dose and what should be the frequency of administration to most to make it most effective in, in terms of treating uh, diabetes. So this is a big national study and Upstate's involved in it. Can you tell me a little bit how that works? Oh yeah, absolutely. And this is uh, a study conducted, I think, in approximately 13 states and about 35 to 40 research centers across the country. And we at Upstate Diabetes Endocrinology Division are one of them. I am the principal investigator for this site. And in total, for this, what they call as a phase 2b study, which is a dose finding study in addition to proving the safety and efficacy, uh, the company has recruited approximately 250 to 300 study subjects of type 2 diabetes across the country and we are participating in that. And uh, it is very likely that uh, the study will be expanded uh, to include more treatment arms uh, and we are we have been selected upstate as one of the centers to conduct the future studies as well. So some of our patients are involved in these studies. And right now, if I heard you correctly, it's for people with type 2 diabetes. Is this a medication that might be used for type 1 diabetics? Uh, eventually, we hope 
uh, yes, because uh, like any other new drug, uh, we need to first establish how potent this oral formulation is uh, compared to the existing oral drugs and also insulin per se. And if we demonstrate the efficacy comparable to that of insulin and it's as safe as uh, the existing medications, it could as a next step be tried and uh, get approved possibly for type 1 diabetes as well. Uh, right now again, the stage of development we are in, I would see the company would require to conduct a much bigger, larger scale studies both in type 2 and type 1 diabetes before they can submit the product to the regulatory authorities for an approval which will be probably I would say two to four years from today at least. Well, then let's focus on type 2 diabetes. That yes. is, now, that's the one that more people have type 2 than type 1, right? Yes. I mean, among the 30 million people in America who have got diabetes, I would say 90% of them are type 2. And that's been a major problem, not just in the United States, but globally. We have 425 million people across the world having type 2 diabetes. And this number, unfortunately, is going to exceed uh, to more than 600 million in the next several years. And is that, remind me again, it, the pancreas is not making insulin effectively? Yes, that's one of the component. But the other component is what is called as insulin resistance. The insulin that's produced is not working effectively on the body tissues. And on top of that, there is a progressive decrease in the insulin production capacity from the pancreas. You mentioned that we're in a phase two trial. Can you kind of walk me through the stages of development? Yeah, for the, the drug development is a very process and regulatory driven scenario. And every new drug that needs an approval by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration or the corresponding regulatory agencies in the respective countries has to go through uh, three major phases. Phase one is to demonstrate that it is safe. It can be administered to initially to healthy, normal volunteers and a small number of disease population subjects. So and we know on this particular drug, that's passed That's already that. passed. We are passed that. Exactly. Okay. And phase two is a stage where we identify and demonstrate an increased safety, continued demonstration of safety and efficacy and identify what would be the right dose that is more likely to be on the market. So making and, sure it works and how much is needed for, for it to work. Absolutely. And okay. then we go on to a phase three, which is a multi-center trial randomized in a hundreds and thousands of patients, depending on what the product is. There are different regulatory requirements uh, for the phase three program. And that's going to be what we call as a regulatory approval studies or pivotal studies or registration enabling studies in different terminologies are used for that. And that's the data package that the companies would take to the FDA to discuss and get an approval. And then, of course, once the drug is on the market, they conduct what's called as a phase four or post-approval uh, studies to facilitate commercialization or even these days there has been a lot of emphasis on what we call real-world evidence generation studies. It's not just the story doesn't end just getting it approved and get it on the market, but eventually we need to demonstrate continued safety and efficacy in a larger population in a day-to-day -day use when it is being prescribed in a standard of care setting. Good. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Ramachandra Naik, a professor of endocrinology, diabetes, and metabolism at Upstate, about the prospects for a new oral insulin for people with diabetes. Now, insulin is not the only medication that people with diabetes have to take. So would the use of oral insulin change the rest of the medicines? Would it change the way they take them and... Yes, it's a good question and uh, we hope it will because one of the major limitations that we see with insulin, I mean, insulin treatment has gone through significant ad advances and refinements in terms of the type of insulin, the duration of action of insulins, and even the way the insulin is administered in the form of a very uh, highly sophisticated pen devices which are virtually painless. But despite all that, there is always a mental barrier and inertia in the minds of patients not to inject. They have some kind of a needle phobia or the, the physicians, they delay initiating insulin as a last resort in the what we call as therapeutic armamentorium, the therapeutic option that we have to treat diabetes. They try to use insulin at a much later stage in the 
disease which is not uh, good from the medical perspective sooner we initiate insulin therapy for diabetes patients better it is so by giving insulin if this trial successful and if this were to be on the market in the oral formulation would be a major advance to use the insulin preparation much earlier in the natural history of disease that would be a major benefit to the patients so right now if someone is newly diagnosed with diabetes the patient themselves may be the one that's saying i really don't want to inject myself with insulin can we try some other things and the doctor may prescribe different things yeah that is true i mean i'm talking purely in the context of type 2 because type 1 there is no question of there is no discussion right. it's everybody has to be on insulin but type 2s we use a pro- drug called metformin which is a time tested foundi- foundation of treatment i would say founding stone of diabetes therapy and on top of that you build adding second drug and third drug depending on what is patient's clinical scenario what's the risk of uh, low blood sugar propensity what's his age what's his kidney status uh, what is the risk of uh, he putting on weight or whether or not he would like to lose weight so all these things and most importantly these days an emphasis is given on whether or not the drug is helpful in people with established cardiovascular disease or whether it helps in reducing the cardiovascular risk all those will determine which will be the second and third drug to add and insulin there is no such discussion uh, for whatever reason because insulin is physiological it always works there is no dose limit it it has no side effect other than low blood sugar and very rarely we see allergic reaction to insulin but it is very very minuscule so if the same insulin can be administered in the same safe and effective way orally this would probably move high up in the order of medications to be used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes so it sounds like it would be a a better option for people if they if it certainly if it would be a better option yes so, and do i hear you correctly that it i mean it could be life altering it really, could be because yeah, you it, wouldn't have to do the injections absolutely if they don't have to take injection and if they can take the oral formulation it could be a game changing uh, therapeutic option well that's exciting now the headlines recently um have reported on soaring insulin prices why are the prices of insulin rising so much yeah it's a, it's a very complex topic i mean this it, it's very hard to address in a short uh period it itself is a topic of a different uh, altogether a, a, a separate discussion by itself but at a high level what i can say is lot of these insulin formulations that uh, came in the market they were reaching the end of their patent life uh they were going through patent expiration i think it began in 2015 and by 2016 17 and 18 lot of the insulin formulation that were innovative and first or best in class formulations they went through patent expiration so and when a, they, yeah. let me let me just when a patent expires a drug company no longer holds the exclusive they right they cannot have the exclusive it. right they okay. cannot have the premium pricing then there could be a generic alternative so today we have got generic alternatives to most of the insulin so just before the patent expiration unfortunately the pharmaceutical industry tried to encash the the most they could and probably that was one of the driving forces but again that could be one of the reasons but that may not be the only reason and lot of times we run into the situations in the clinic where a particular insulin is covered by one insurance company the other one is covered by a different insurance the copays are different so it's a very complex a topic to understand but this is the very high level answer to your question okay yeah do you think or can you speculate if an oral <laughs> insulin would cost more or less or would it it's very hard to speculate at this too early in the game to speculate because we are only in phase 2 the company has to conduct much larger scale trial get an approval and then once we know what's its final efficacy and safety uh, with respect to the existing formulations uh then probably we would know the price but it's entirely a decision by the company where they want to position it in terms of pricing but we sincerely hope that since this innovative treatment if it were to be successful and were to come onto the market it should be beneficial for the majority of people suffering from diabetes and i am we all medical community are sincerely hoping that the pricing would be very competitive uh with other oral formulation that are currently on the market. Well, thanks so much for being here and sharing this exciting information. I uh, thank you Amber once again. My guest has been Upstate endocrinologist Dr. Ramachandra Naik. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Health Link on Air. Music
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. A tribute to friendship, a recognition of heartbreak, all of this comes together in Carmi Soifer's lyrical poem, Trail. Soifer lives and teaches in Washington State. Trail for Kathy. Ghosts do not arrange themselves as they should here in the hospital hall where my friend walks entubed. Others pass, are hooked to something. This night is a long one. One wakes, one sleeps, one wakes again. Morning, my kingdom for a morning. My friend is still, already facing what may need facing, or not. There is today and or not, and there are surgical cuts that hurt to the heart no matter what. No one can bring comfort. My friend knows this too well. She plans to walk the long trail. I send her something. It looks like a poem. It holds words in it, and sighs, space. What else can I share with my friend who walks the hospital halls, breathing, letting oxygen do what it can? This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about child trafficking and sexual exploitation. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.